1: Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We pray that He will be with us, and tonight, all pray. Lord, we uh, petition You, we thank You, we love You, and uh, we just seek Your Spirit to be with us as we seek to understand You. And uh, forgive me for the things where I am uh, wrong, and uh, help us to know You, uh, which is life eternal to know you and your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord has blessed us abundantly as tonight we recognize that we have been in full-time ministry here in Utah for 10 years. Sunday night, 8 p.m., was our 10-year anniversary. This is our 10th 10-year anniversary show since we started in Salt Lake City. The road has been filled, and I mean filled, with tremendous blessings and events and opportunities for growth. So I want to publicly thank all who have been a part of the ministry through thick and thin, uh, selfless individuals who have given their all to see us thrive and survive. Many of you have prayed for us. You've supported us financially. You've volunteered your time and talents, spread the news of the ministry and show with others. And you've even given me the benefit of the doubt when I look like I've lost my mind. So uh, I don't want to mention names because once you do that, I mean, there's just so many and people know who they are, but most importantly, God knows who you are and he knows uh, your heart for him. So I just thank you for all you are and all you've done. As a really quick review, and we do this sometimes, but I want I want you to know, uh, please tell your family and friends, especially Seekers of Truth, that one, we have two main websites, www.hotm.tv and then campuschurch.tv where we have an in-house and an outhouse, in-house and uh, uh, and a congregation that watches from throughout the world in our church and we do verse-by-verse teachings. On our HOTM TV site, you'll find find about 500 shows, uh, links to our YouTube page, highlight moments from our shows and other information relative to the Mormon Christian debate and to Christianity writ large. In our bookstore, you'll find five books. I was a born-again Mormon where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. If my king were of this world and my servants would fight, it's not the end of the world. And in two weeks, Knife to a Gunfight, our fifth book will be coming out. We'll have that available there. We, offer, we also offer a 40-page manual or workbook called The End of Material Religion. We have t-shirts at the store, short films, bumper stickers, four volumes of scripture set to music, And uh, then at www.campuschurch.tv, we present something entirely different, something more important in my estimation, and that's the Word of God taught verse by verse. Our objective is to provide people who are kind of fed up with uh, modern evangelicalism. Uh, We wanna give them the ability to tune in and make campus their home church from wherever they are. You can watch it live with us on Sundays. Uh, anytime or when it's convenient for you and we're there to teach scripture to the best of our ability. We have no memberships. We never appeal for money or tithes or offerings. The word of God is freely given. The word of God is freely delivered. And you can disagree with me. You probably should. But uh, we're here to support you in your walk and not you to support us. And so the acronym for campus legally in the state of Utah stands for Christian anarchists Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture, but don't let this title frighten you. All are welcome. In fact, we Cassidy's developed a spot for us. Take a look.
2: Like a growing tree, We've gone through some stages in our approach to doing church. For the past few years, we've remained at campus, Christian anarchists, meaning to prayerfully understand scripture. After everything has been said and done, we find this last acronym far too limiting. After all, he is probably the only Christian anarchist in North America. So after 10 years, campus, today, and hopefully for the decades to come, should be known as Christian, meeting to prayerfully understand scripture. Come as you are.
1: You know what? I saw she slipped asses in there. <laughs> and that, it could not be more apropos for the group of people who come, and <laughs> I'm just kidding you, I'm totally kidding you. We love everybody, and uh, it's just kind of a, a thing. So that's what's up. We hope you'll take advantage of things we offer, frankly share these resources with anybody who might be interested. And we thank God for the opportunity to serve the King, uh, uh, and the Lord, it's just such a blessing. And so for the past 10 years, we've been very blessed. Listen, we do have, uh, from our recent shows, talking about Jesus and regeneration and how scripture says that he was regenerated. We've had some people express concern. And I just came across a passage literally today when I was doing some scripture study. And it's in uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Speaking of Christ, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit did you know it said that about christ that he was justified in the spirit think about what that might mean i'm not going to tell you what i think it means but that falls in line with what we were talking about the past few weeks and uh, it has troubled some people so that's what it is let's get right into our topic tonight for the past few weeks we've been talking about rebirth and what it meant even in jesus mortal life Not that he needed to be born again, but that he was regenerated at his resurrection so he could enter into heaven as the high priest and as the king to to, uh, reign from the uh, right hand of God. In some ways, this is a troubling subject because it has a tendency to make it seem like Jesus was not God in the flesh when I say that. Uh, Tonight's subject ought to fix this completely through a very subtle distinction but a very important distinction nonetheless I've learned a ton by researching this hope you will too in John 3:16 we read a very familiar verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life what do you think scripture means when it uses that title the or only begotten son now most people have an idea and they think I thought I knew what it meant. Uh, I, I used to think that it meant Jesus is the only human being God has ever begotten in flesh. That's how I used to understand it. Many Christians understand this title in this manner. The LDS today, modern Mormons, understand Jesus as the only begotten Son in this way. Is it a reference to the birth of Jesus that he was God's only begotten son, because begotten usually refers to human birth, to us. We read in biblical genealogies that Job begat this kid, and this person begat that. And so we take that, and we think begotten means that. And so we get confused when Jesus is called God's only begotten son, and we say it means that when he took on flesh. Uh, It doesn't help matters when we read in Hebrews 1, 5, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. End quote. This verse taken on its own would appear to tell us that Jesus was begotten at a particular day in time, which would fit well with his physical birth. And so we assume that that's what it means. Uh, But perhaps a closer look at that title is is necessary. And since the Bible says repeatedly that the Word is eternal, that the Word is uncreated, that the Word has always existed, that Jesus is co-eternal, all those things, I think it's important. The verse I quoted last week and the verse in question today relative to Jesus being begotten is taken from Psalms 2. Uh, Psalm 2, 7 through 8, it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. All right? Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. This last verse connects Christ to being begotten when he triumphs over nations. Okay? And so in that Place where Psalms two seven eight is applied, it's speaking of when Jesus triumphs over the nations at His return. Then, as we mentioned last week, Paul is quoted quotes Psalms two seven eight in Acts thirteen thirty three, and there it's he says God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my Son today I have begotten thee. And so here in this very passage. Paul connects Jesus being begotten to Christ's resurrection. Okay, so we covered that last week. The fact of the matter is these two places where the line says Jesus is begotten of the Father relates to resurrection of the dead and his triumphal return. And begotten in that sense does not mean the same thing as it means in other places. From these passages alone, we can see that whenever Psalms 2 is applied, it means far more than when Jesus was born as Jesus of Nazareth or when the word became flesh and became Jesus of Nazareth. The only begotten means far more in its application to scripture than simply when he was born. And I just gave you two examples. But here's when it starts to get interesting. The title only begotten in the New Testament comes from a single Greek word, and it's monogenes, all right? And that's a compound word. And with the first half, monos, mean only, and the second half, either coming from the verb genomahi, which means to be, or to come into existence, or to be made, or from its noun, genos, which means of a family or a kind, and that's related to our word genetics. So, he he was the only to come into existence is one way to read it, or he's the only of God's kind. We can read it either way, whether we're looking at the noun or we're looking at the uh, verb. uh, monogonase could be either of those, all right? Now listen, most modern translations of the Bible take the Greek word monogonese as only one and only, only unique, only unique kind, only unique kind, not only begotten, only unique kind is how many modern translations will put this in. But the authorized version, the King James version, translate only begotten. And so when it does that, it automatically causes us to think of his birth. But if you read it in the more modern translations, The only unique kind is a far, far better translation, okay? And we'll see there is no one or two word English explanation for monogamous. So we need to explore the word a little bit better. First of all, only begotten is only used by John. And it's used four times in scripture. It's used in John 1.14, 118, 3.16, and 3.18, and then one time, excuse me, it's five times, in 1 John 4.9. Only begotten, John only, and those are the places. There is a contextually good reason for this, which we're going to get to in a minute, okay? Luke used it three times, but he was not speaking of Jesus. He was speaking of someone's only child, monogamous, but in reference to Jesus, John is the only one who uses it in those places. So that being said, the exception to what I just said is there is one more place where monogamous is used. And it's really interesting. And from this place, we learn something. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 18, speaks of Abraham and Isaac. Okay? This is the passage. It says, By faith, Abraham when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his monogonase, his only begotten son. That's how you would translate. That's what it says, okay? Of whom it is uh, said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So listen, Isaac is called Abraham's only begotten son in the King James. Using the Greek word monogonase that is applied to Jesus being the only begotten son of God. But Abraham had an other son. He had another child, okay? Uh, Ishmael through his concubine, Hagar, right? Remember? And yet the writer of Hebrews calls Isaac the monogamous, the only begotten son. So we know that Ishmael truly was physically a son of Abraham. But God here says that Isaac was his monogamous or what the King James calls his only begotten son. This usage clearly shows that only or one and only is a poor translation of monogamous because Isaac was not Abraham's one and only son in the literal sense. Unique son? Absolutely. Isaac was absolutely Abraham's unique son, right? Uh, So he was born to Abraham's true wife uh, and not of a concubine and thus according to the promises and will of God to her and Abraham. Stay with me here. Only from only begotten is not the best term as proven by this example of Ishmael and Isaac. So I've replaced it the mono part of monogenes with uniquely, and other translations do that too. Uniquely, begotten son, uniquely from the kind of God, whatever you want to say. But looking at the second part of the compound word, we have a decision to make. Is it best to understand monogenes as genos, meaning uniquely genos, or genomahi, which is Uniquely genamahi, okay? Genos agains means from the same kind, from the offspring of, of the family of. So, are we saying he's uniquely of the same kind, the family of or offspring of, or is Jesus uh, genamahi, uh, which is he's uniquely existing, he's uniquely coming into existence? Which one is best uh, used when we talk about Christ? So. Was Isaac uniquely more of Abraham's offspring? Or was Isaac uniquely existing or coming into existence? Which one would you say? Both came into existence, Isaac and Ishmael, in the same way. Both came in the same way. Okay, you got that? But only Isaac was uniquely Abraham's offspring or family. Only that way. So I would suggest that's the way that we understand uh, uh, monogenes. That it means um, uniquely Abraham's offspring. Uniquely. Because uh, it wasn't that they were came into existence in a different way. They came into existence in the same way. But Isaac was uniquely his offspring versus Ishmael was not. Ishmael had been born and came into existence but was... Uh, uh, of the same genos in the way Isaac was, not of, truly of the same genos, okay? Only begotten from the authorized version sounds like an only child, but it doesn't mean that at all. You have to understand that. This is kind of frightening to people, but we have to understand that in order to understand what only begotten really means. How do we know this? By reading the passage in Hebrews and its use for Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but was the only son of Abraham's true family. When modern translations use unique, they try to prevent confusion over this sticky wicket, but then they create another kind of confusion. The example in Hebrew shows this is an incomplete translation of the word. If God had wanted to just say only son, he, or only whatever, unique, he would have just said monos. But he said monogonese. And while you put those together, you have to to understand what he's trying to say. So, I would say that the Hebrews passage says, The only one uniquely of the same kind. The only one uniquely of the same kind. That's far better than only begotten. Jesus Christ, the only one uniquely of the same kind of God. Okay? So, let's look now at the examples John uses And now we'll bring context in, and you're going to understand what John was saying every time he used only begotten son relative to Jesus. In First John, uh, I mean in John, the first chapter, verses 14 and 18, verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's the first time he uses it. Verse 14. Then at verse 18, four verses later, he says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Those are the first two times John uses it. Why does he do it? In verse 14 and 18, John says Jesus is monogamous, translated the only begotten Son of the King James. Let's read two verses immediately preceding verse 14 at verse 12. This is what John says. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So right before Jesus is called the only begotten by John, right before he does that for the first time, he tells that, he says that those who receive Christ become the sons of God, his children, born of him. After he establishes that fact, he comes in and he says, speaks of Jesus as the only begotten. Okay, every time John uses begotten, the only begotten son, prior to him doing that, he is talking about us becoming sons of God. Okay, so right before Jesus is called the only begotten, John tells us that those who receive him become the sons of God. John is drawing a clear contrast between the sons of God, mentioned in verse 12, who come to him by faith, become that by faith, and Jesus, who is not just any son, but the only one uniquely from God. It's always that comparison when John brings up the only begotten, because he first establishes that we can become God's sons and daughters but right after he does that he talks about Jesus being the only uniquely one from God's family. You see the difference? That's why it happens contextually throughout. So where human beings may become the sons of God by and through believing on Jesus, we are not uniquely of the same kind as the Father as Jesus is. Okay? Our genus, our family or kind is very different. All right? So We must be born again into God's family, but Jesus always was, is, always will be uniquely of God's kind. And so when people say, I believe he was just a man or Jesus wasn't God in the flesh or any of this, you can go through and use these arguments if people will listen. And if you get someone who can articulate it better than me and show every time John uses the only begotten, he first talks about human beings becoming the children, sons and daughters of God by faith. But then he follows it up and says, I don't want you to uh, get this mistaken. He's the only monogamous. He's the only unique one who comes from the family of God. You get it? So uh, we are sons, but we are not sons the way he is a son. He is monogamous. And listen, this does not refer to his birth. It doesn't refer to his birth at all. And when we say it does, we just, we've been lazy And we just accept it that way because it makes sense to us. This is the means to see and understand him as the monogamous of God from before the earth was. That's that's what Scripture is talking about, him being the only begotten of God, before the earth was, not at his birth. Look at John 3, 16 and 18. This is the second time John uses the only begotten. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So he's established that. Then again, he's called Jesus the only begotten son twice there, right? But here again, what's John? why does John do this? We know that before that, he has to have been talking about us becoming sons of God. When does he do it? John 3, 16, two verses before, 18, he says to Nicodemus, I mean, many verses before, 12 verses before, he says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say you must be go, uh, born again. The wind blows where it wants, and you hear the sound thereof, but can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So he establishes that precedent in talking about us becoming sons of God through rebirth. And then a few verses later, He now brings in Jesus, the only begotten Son again, the monogamous, the one uniquely of the Father alone, all right? Uniquely of the same kind as the Father. Finally, let's look at monogamous in the last version where uh, uh, John uses it, and that's in 1 John 4.9. 1 John 4.9, it says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. Right there, it shows you it's talking about his status before being born. He sent his only begotten son into the world, okay? So we know that's not referring to his birth. It was his only begotten son that we might live through him. This is the only other place besides uh, uh, the gospel of John where Jesus is called the only begotten son. And again, context is needed. Go to verse 7 which comes before verse 9. What does he say? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So again, John has established that we can be born of God, become sons and daughters of God. He establishes that, and then he comes back, and immediately he calls Jesus the benogamous, uh, showing that he came from the family of God. We are born into it by faith. As with all the other places John uses monogamous, there's a sharp contrast between those who are born again, born of God, sons of God, and the one who is God's son in a very unique way. But even unique is an inferior way to describe him. He is unique, but he is more than you. He is the only one who is of the same kind as the father. And here's the point Again, his being the only one who is the same kind as the father did not happen at his birth, okay? He has always been of the same kind as his father. And so, in other words, the Greek term monogonase does not mean Jesus came into existence by being born. Again, only begotten, when, it, or when I say Jesus, I mean the only begotten did not become the only begotten by being born, only begotten, when attributed to Jesus, means he's the only one of the same kind, the only one of the same kind as the Father. So when people have had some trouble, when we're talking about Jesus, the man being regenerated at his resurrection, don't take those single shows and just make a big mountain out of a molehill. We have to take the whole thing, and this is a follow-up to it, okay? When we talk about only begotten, we see what his, his identity truly was. This is how John uses the word, and we can see this interpretation holding water when the writer of Hebrews describes Isaac. He was Abraham's only son who was truly of his family, born of his true wife as God had promised Abraham and Sarah. John uses monogamies to sharpen the contrast between us, who we might say are God's second-birth children, second-birth children through rebirth, and birth of the Spirit, with Jesus Christ being the only one of the same kind who was this from the beginning. So if you have that planted in your mind that the only begotten is not a term relative to his birth, but relative to who he has been from the beginning, then it's going to help with our discussion with Mormonism. Remember, Jesus made a clear delineation between people on earth and himself. He said in John three thirty one, he that comes from above is above all. He's talking about himself. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. That's monogamous. I came from the same family as God, which the Jews tore their hair out and wanted to stone him for. John eight twenty three, Jesus said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So anytime, I don't care how liberal or how educated or how critical people are or know, anytime someone steps away from Jesus being not of the Father in the exact same way, I I automatically know that they're off. No matter how well-intended their logic is, they're off. I'm not saying I understand it but they are completely off when they try to make him a man or someone who became God by overcoming this world or all those things. Now, as a man in flesh, he did have to overcome himself and his will, but that has nothing to do with who he was internally. This clarification, only begotten, refers to Jesus' uniqueness. Really, really important. Now, this gets sticky if you're not thinking to the Mormon Christian debate. Here's why. And it's not for reasons you might think. First of all, modern Latter-day Saints today say that Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God, which Mormonism uses 10 times more than the Bible uses, that line. Joseph borrowed cliches, and he inserted them in his scripture. It uses it 30 times more, probably, than John did. Is They say it's because of his physical birth. That's what they say, okay? LDS prophet and president, Joseph Fielding Smith, wrote this in Answers to Gospel Questions 533, all through the ministry of our Savior, he acknowledged the fact that he was the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. That addition of in the flesh means that's how he is God's only begotten Son. It's truly a fascinating statement that an LDS prophet of modernity, it's a tough word for me to say, because... Nowhere in LDS scripture, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, anywhere does it associate Jesus being the only begotten through the flesh. Nowhere. Nowhere else does it do it. In fact, it does the opposite. Quite frankly, and this is really interesting, only begotten in the Book of Mormon only recognizes Jesus as the only begotten of the Father from before the foundation of the world. It has ne- never, re- this is the way Christians ought to see him. Never does it say that he is uh, the only begotten because of the flesh. In other words, the Book of Mormon talks of Jesus as being the only begotten who would come into the world. That's the proper way to describe it. Now, don't get all frantic and think that I'm siding with Smith. He knew the Bible, and it was the way that this was taught by Christian churches. He knew what they taught, and he was, he was uh, providing a uh, pseudepigrapha, so to speak, a counterfeit to the Bible in his presentation of the Book of Mormon, but he used this properly, that Jesus was the only monogamous of God uniquely from his family all through the Book of Mormon. Second Nephi 25:12 says, the only begotten of the Father shall manifest himself in the flesh. First, he's the only begotten of the Father who will then manifest himself. That's proper doctrine, okay? So likewise, Alma 5:48, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy and truth, cometh cometh, the only begotten comes, to take away the sins of the world. Again, proper context. Why? Smith knew the Bible. He knew the doctrines of the Christians. His parents were Christian. He cut his teeth on this uh, bondage between the faiths, so he included it in there. In Smith's book of Moses, 25 times, now this is a a pre-Christ book. Uh, Jesus is mentioned as, I mean, John's term, only begotten is used. And it's always in relationship with Jesus, having relationship with the Father from the beginning, okay? So, and in his Doctrine and Covenants, it suggests that Christ was the only begotten Son from the beginning. Doctrine and Covenants 29, 46, 49, 5, 76, 13, 23, 25, 93, 11, 124, 123. Doctrine and Covenants 76, 23, and 24 says this, come unto him Come unto him, may likewise become sons and daughters. That is classic Christian teaching. That is John 3. That is John 1. Come unto him, and by grace, by faith and by grace, you will become sons and daughters, okay? Doctrine and Covenants 93.22 goes so far to say, listen, quote, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father in premortality. Listen, all others are spiritually begotten through the Son, That's the exact Christian doctrine that we teach. It's the exact one. We become sons and daughters by faith on the Son. Doctrine of Covenants 93.22 says that. All of these canonized references in LDS books of Scripture support the traditional Christian understanding of Jesus and the phrase only begotten of the Father, referring to his glorified status before the world was. What gives Joseph Fielding Smith and his applying this term to Jesus' birth? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But it shows Latter-day Saints that there was a genesis of truth at the beginning of their stuff that has morphed into a corporate, ugly, monetized empire where now they've just forgotten what the standards are. Why even bring this up? Because it allows us to find a common ground. It allows us to say, step back with me. Let's just talk really about what you believe. In your canon, this is what it says. So why not go by that instead of what the yokels are telling you from over the pulpit in this modern time? McConkie, who was a son-in-law to Joseph Fielding Smith, said, only begotten son, quote, means the only son of the Father in the flesh. McConkie got it from his father-in-law. McConkie, the superscriptorian, brings in the flesh part. LDS Canon does not do that. He goes on and says, and it is to be understood literally. Now we get into the father impregnating Mary in a literal sense. Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. uh, Mormon doctrine, page 546. So now we see how these men in their minds have somehow started to take all this stuff and create new doctrine, and the LDS have bought into that, stepping away from some of the fundamental stuff at the beginning before Smith lost his mind. LDS prophet Joseph S. Smith said this in the First Presidency message, quote, The Christian denominations believe that Christ was begotten not of God, but of the spirit that overshadowed his mother. This is nonsense we must come down to the simple fact that God Almighty was the father of his son, Jesus Christ. Mary the virgin girl who had never known mortal man was his mother. Mary was married to Joseph for time. No man could take her for eternity because she belonged to the father of her divine son. That intimates this, uh, his coming down and having relations with her. All of that started after Smith established in the doctrines where he borrowed from Christianity some of those truths. The point is we can help show LDS people today how far afield the religion has gone from its canonized tenets, in this area at least. Some of the others we can't. And, uh, and all of this plays into breaking walls down of modern Mormonism, because modern Mormonism is in trouble. They are scampering to try to put, the, glue together this broken vase with uh, Elmer's glue And it's not working. And they're doing it almost every week. We see a new attempt to do something to keep the hemorrhaging from going on. I care about those people who are hemorrhaging out. I care where they go and how they go and why they go. And a way that we can help them is to say, look, from the onset, it wasn't as diabolical as it has become. Let explain why. And you can help use some of their own things. Well, then what happened? Their founder lost his mind. He got egocentric, and and then the guys today, it's become a corporate. And you can go into that, but we can keep them tied to Christ somehow because he is in the tenets. And so it's not just this thing where they're so completely wrong, like we like to say when we're anti-Mormons, they're just absolutely, completely wrong. They weren't. They aren't. But the things that are right are more and more have been ignored and we can do something about that. Uh, in terms of, finally, how does, what does this do toward the Trinity? Because I've had questions on the Trinity, uh, because people will say, well, now that you've proven that only begotten refers to his preexistent state, then how could you deny the Trinity? Well, first of all, it's not, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit here. We're talking about Jesus, and I have always said I'm, I'm probably much more of a binitarian than I am a Trinitarian, because I realize that Jesus, and I've never, ever questioned Jesus being God in the flesh. I can com- absolutely confirm that. My problem has to do with personages. When it says God's word was made flesh, how does that translate into our understanding of a pre existent Son? I don't know. Or a pre existent Jesus? That's a question for me. And then the second thing is this personage part that is co eternal, co equal, co existent with the Father both Jesus and the Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, and so I have a problem when it comes to that, but again, Trinitarians may be right, might be dead on. I just like to question the stuff so we can talk about it. So, we'll continue on with our discussion of Jesus next week, and we're going to get into pre-existence now as we talk about the parallels. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. All the operator's clear, whatever calls may come in, let's take a look at this. Something.
2: Jesus was born, and his birth was celebrated. And he grew in wisdom in stature and in favor with God and men. And then his time had come. Revival, miracles, praise from the masses. But soon those same masses turned and walked no more with him. And Jesus, in truth, suffered alone. He was mocked, denied, forsaken. He was killed on a cross like a criminal, outside the city gates where the masses thrived. As sold out followers of him, how could we in our lives expect anything different?
1: Welcome back. We got a uh, Don from Alabama. we'll Get to you in just a second, Don. John L says, "I've been meaning to callings. I have a lot of questions. Uh, you might consider me a disenchanted LDS member, like many people. I'm sure. I looked at you as a snarky punk with nothing better to do than bash another religion. Then I saw you on uh, John galen I get this a lot of Mormon stories, and I saw the real Sean and was impressed." And so I, got some, I have some questions. I'm going to try to hit his questions really quick because I emailed him back and said we'll try to hit them. He says, why was Jesus baptized? Was it for priesthood? Did he need it for his ministry? Was it a Jewish thing? I can see several reasons why Jesus was baptized. One, uh, Jesus was, as Hebrew says, our high priest. And what happened in the Old Testament when the high priest, prior to officiating as the high priest, uh, he was washed and he was anointed. And so, Jesus, before he started his ministry as, our, as the great high priest, not ours, but uh, in heaven, ours, the nation of Israel, them, what he did was he was washed, ablution, and then the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We have that symbolically put upon him. Secondly, it was to fulfill prophecy. We know from Malachi, referring to John, that John was going to have a certain interaction with the promised Messiah, and one of the things that John was supposed to do is be able to uh, discern who the promised Messiah was. How is he supposed to discern that? By the Holy Spirit falling upon the person he baptized. So the Messiah had to be baptized by John in order for that sign to be given to John, who is prophesied of in Malachi, to be able to say, this is the Lamb of God. So there's another reason he was baptized. And then it was to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when people say, why was Jesus baptized? I say, why was Jesus circumcised? And people say, well, that was to fulfill the law. Well, in, in Judaism, uh, it was to fulfill all righteousness, and he didn't need it. It wasn't to give him any kind of power or anything, but it was to do all of these things, and part of it was to fulfill all righteousness. He did it because it was something that he was supposed to do. John was baptizing. He, John ref- tried to stop it, but Jesus said, no, do it to fulfill all righteousness. He says, do you believe in a literal resurrection? What happened to Jesus' body uh, when he ascended into heaven? Uh, a couple things. One, Jesus took his body with him and the angel said, hey, while you guys stand here looking up, he's going to come back in the same way he left. And I believe that meant with his body. Uh, why? Because I believe that body was important for him to come back to the nation of Israel to recognize him as the one who he was. I believe in literal resurrection in that sense, but I believe that according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we will have a literal resurrection. of. It's a spiritual resurrection. I do not believe... Uh, that bodies for the past 2,000 years are going to be coming out of the graves. Uh, I don't believe in that. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. I believe it's a spiritual resurrection where we're given heavenly bodies that will work in the heavenly place, but it will somehow be related to what we were before. What that means, I don't know. Uh, Do you see value in baptism even though you express it unnecessary? Absolutely. It's a beautiful expression of uh, an inward faith. It's an external expression of an inward, heartfelt faith. Every time I'm involved in baptisms, I love them. Um, uh, But I I don't see them... You know, it's kind of like fasting and prayer I see as really good things as well, but not necessary to salvation. Um, Maybe we could put baptism in that. It's a beautiful expression. I, when I was baptized, and it was after I had begun in ministry... Uh, it really changed some things in me, so there might be some power to it that God gives us. I don't know. But in terms of salvation, all I have to do is go to the thief on the cross and look at what Paul said. I'm glad I never baptized anybody except this guy. And if it was that important, I doubt he would say, I'm glad I didn't, okay? Uh, is it possible for a Mormon to be a Christian? Would it require a disavowal of Mormonism? This is a really good question uh, and a rather short and long answer. Um, You know, the best way for me to explain that would be to say this. Uh, Does a person have to disavow Mormonism? Absolutely not. But would a person disavow Mormonism who comes to understand Christ Jesus in all probability, unless God led them to stay for some reason or another? Are there people who think Mormonism is good who are Christians? Absolutely. Uh, Are they missing out on a full experience with Christ that they could find uh, by leaving behind some uh, elements of Mormonism? Absolutely. So these things are just not black and white. It used to be anti-Mormonism would step in and say, you've got to leave the Mormon church. And we came in and, and said, that is just not true. You come to know who Jesus is and let him lead you out. And so we always stand by that. Uh, I need a personal relationship with God. How do I get it? And uh, you know, I would say go to him directly don't trust men, don't trust me, your bishop, your pastor, your neighbor, go to God and just pour your heart open and ask him to reveal himself and show himself in your life and then be patient and wait. And no matter how long it takes, walk in faith that he will respond. Uh, You can't conjure it up. The wind goes, the Holy Spirit goes where he wants. He's going to hit you when he's ready and when God knows it's time, but just, uh, and then read the Bible, I would suggest. Read the Bible, you could try to attend church and hear the Bible taught, things like that. Do you have any recommendation on learning the Bible, especially teachings of Jesus? Uh, I wouldn't limit teachings of Jesus. Uh, They were certainly good, but they were directly at the house of Israel who he came to uh, teach. I would start with the Pilgrim's edition uh, simply because it was written for teenagers and it's really, really easy to understand. It's the King James Version, but it has these footnotes that help you out with the basics. It's hard to find. And not LDS version. Read, relax. Relax and just talk to God like your friend and say, help me, and he will. How do you reconcile a vengeful God of the Old Testament uh, to the turn, your, uh, turn the other cheek God of the New Testament? Uh, this is his last question. And essentially, I would say that God was using the nation of Israel as the law keepers. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you my law. And by giving you this law, it's going to condemn you. And it's it's going to condemn anybody else who tries to get to me through religion. So here's the law, obey it. And they couldn't obey it. Peter says, our fathers couldn't obey it. So the law was a fail. So God gave us that. And he said, you break the law, this is the result. And so we have that vengeful God going on. So Christ comes, and he gives us love, and he turns the other cheek, and he shows us through him. That's how we get to God, and that's the whole purpose of it. So our prayer's with you. Don. Let's go to Don in Alabama. We'll continue with emails afterward. Don, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, sir. Hello, sir. Yes, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. You have, yeah. to, you have to turn that computer down, Don. I will. I'm going to mute it when he comes on. There
3: it is. I just mute it.
1: <laughs> All right, you're on. Okay. You're on the air. We still okay. have this problem. Ten years and we still have this problem. You're on the air, Don. Yes, I'm here. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you?
3: Yeah, great. Uh, you know, uh, I really appreciate what you've uh, what you revealed here about the Son of, uh, the Son of God. I really. Uh, open my eyes on some stuff, but I've got a, I got want to ask you a question now. Yes. And I think i got something to add uh, to, the, uh, to what you said. I don't know, maybe you can help me. Uh, who, first question, who's the shepherd? Who's the good
1: shepherd? Well, I would say the, Christ.
3: Okay, and who's the stone? Who's the chief cornerstone?
1: I would say Jesus.
3: Okay, let's go to Genesis 49, 14, 24. And that's where uh, Joseph got his blessings from G, uh, from his father. Okay. Let me read, uh, you, you probably know it, but let me read it out of the King James. Okay. But his bow, aboding strength, and his arms and his hands were made strong by the hands of the man of God of Jacob. From hence. Is the shepherd the stone of Israel? So that's saying Jesus came through Joseph, not Judah. What verse in 49? Uh,
1: it's
3: uh, is Joseph's blessing, in it's 20, uh, 24, is what I just read. And I think I can explain how that happened.
1: I don't know, but I don't know. But I'll, I, I don't know, uh, but I'll tell you what: I, I'm not a scholar, but I am a researcher. And next week, Don, I'll launch the show with an answer to this question.
3: Let me tell you what I think. Okay. Okay. The birthright transferred from Judah to Joseph, and how did that take place? It says that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me in. G- she was conceived by the power of, of the most high it don't say how i think that joseph's seed was used to impregnate mary it, it could have been a clone or it could have just been uh just to see, see god had the power to do either then by that fact uh he gained the kingdom to his father, he was adopted by Joseph, that gave him the kingdom. But the birthright transferred to Joseph. And we saw that happen in William with King Philip when he married Elizabeth. The hmm. uh, uh, same process. Hmm. Uh, the birthright transferred to Philip's bloodline. Hmm. Remember, yeah, Charles and Albert. The same process.
1: Huh very very interesting yeah well,
3: if you can help me next week research that because that's really you know this, this verse here about the shepherd of Israel yeah. and it bugged me for years and years and years until I heard uh, somebody make some comments and it triggered me to thinking how that could have happened and it was about cloning a couple had their dog cloned in uh, 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 in, in the East, in the, uh, over in, uh, Korea, South Korea, they cloned animals. Hmm. And they took parts of their dog and cloned that dog. And I thought, oh, goodness, that's what Jesus, I uh, God did it. He cloned or uh, implanted her with another seed from Joseph.
1: Very interesting, Don. I'm gonna check it out. We'll talk again
3: yeah i thank you a lot sean i really enjoyed your program and one more thing about the baptism of jesus yeah jesus was baptized into the mosaic law and he went up into the mountains and satan had power and tempted him you know all that stuff was the temptations uh he had power to tempt him or it wasn't real you know and uh but when he came down from the mountains. And so then he began to teach the kingdom of heaven. And from that point on, the devil feared and trembled when he met him. Hmm. So I think Jesus was just baptized into the Mosaic uh, in law, and then he, uh, the rebirth into or whatever, he gained uh, the power that Satan feared and trembled from that point on. He never tempted see again. Well, yeah, the daddy's death seminar was a temptation, but. Yeah. Hey. We had power from that time to cast the devil out and so forth. You know, anyway, let's, you, you, if you'll help me with that next week, I appreciate it.
1: I don't know if I can help you, but I'll check it out. Thanks so much, Don. Thank you a bunch. Bye bye. God bless. Bye bye. Got a great email from Omar. He is a Muslim. He uh, This is uh, so touching because. He obviously doesn't speak our language. This is phonetically written. Uh, He says, Mr. McCraney, may the light of the Lord shine upon you and your family. I have mailed you before, and thanks for the reply. I am writing R-I-G-H-T-G-N to you because I am in dilemma. I was born a Muslim, and I have been searching for God for so long to the point I've reached dead end. I have been watching your programs online, and you are the only one who makes sense as far as Christianity is concerned. I'm not good with words like Moses. I need Aaron to help me, but I feel that I can. I have to do it myself. I cannot express myself, but there will I try to find the time to do it. I wanted to thank you for the devotion to the faith. Your family, your father must have been a good man to raise such a good man. In the contact, in being in contact with you soon, it touches me so much because seekers are seekers, whether Muslim or Buddhist or Islam or Christian or Mormon or Catholic or or a Baptist or Lutheran. It doesn't matter. Uh, straight as the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it, but they do, and they seek and they look, and they're always out. Just like the guy we talked about a few, Sindar Singh, who came to know God uh, uh, through Christ while he was raised in a, what uh, we would call a pagan faith. So uh, it's amazing how God's spirit is reaching. We shouldn't close our eyes and limit it in, through these dogmatic ways. And I pray for Omar, our brother, that he will uh, find Christ Jesus in that relationship uh, in a mighty way. Derek, we out? About, about one, one one and a half uh, This is from Sarah. I really don't know what I'm looking for, but I know I'm not finding it. I've listened to a lot of the shows. I'm open-minded about uh, seeking the truth. I think you are as well. I'm having trouble finding people to fellowship with. The closest I've come is a small group that claims to teach the truth, but they are very closed-minded to the things that do not exactly confirm with what they believe. In fact, they just ignore the things that don't fit their view. I don't think you do that. Uh, Do you have a small group where a Bible studies where people talk about things. I don't even know how to answer, ask the right question. And so I wrote, you know, there's no sacred cows. God can withstand our scrutiny. Scripture says test all things. I invited Sarah, I don't know if she lives in Utah, but I invited her to come to campus and also to meet with people here who do meet throughout the week. And these guys, I think, talk about anything and everything. It's an open forum and it's no holds barred because that's how we grow, and that's how we learn, and you won't be criticized. Uh, So if you're in this area, Sarah, join, and if not, we pray that you'll find something. I think we're out of time. I've got about eight more emails from this week to read that are good, but we'll try to hit them next week. And uh, one man was asking about watching tonight, because he wanted to hear his email read. I'm really sorry I didn't get to it, but we'll get to it next week. We'll see you then here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light till monkeys start.